This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. I think there's a different moral claim for someone who is on the run fearing for their life than for someone who wants to move for a better life. It's not that one is good and the other is bad, it's that they're different. For many years, the United States was the world leader in protecting and resettling refugees. That all ended with the Trump administration. As one of Trump's first acts in office, he suspended the U.S. refugee program. And over the past three years, the number of persons selected overseas and brought to the U.S. as refugees has plummeted. President Obama, in his last year in office, set a goal of bringing 110,000 refugees to the United States. This year, the Trump administration has put the limit at 18,000. Canada, a country with one-tenth the population of the United States, has resettled more refugees than the United States in recent years. Now, at the same time that the Trump administration has decimated the U.S. refugee program, it's taken dramatic steps to prevent people fleeing danger from applying for asylum at the U.S. southwest border. It's pressured Mexico to stop the flow of asylum seekers, and it's signed agreements with Central American countries that allow the United States to send asylum seekers who have reached the U.S. back to Central American countries to have their claims decided there. And the administration has pushed back 50,000 people to wait on the Mexican side of the border while their cases are pending in the United States. The Trump administration has also issued new regulations that deny asylum to people who've traveled through other countries before arriving at U.S. borders. Together, these policies threaten to end asylum in the United States. These measures have had a dramatic impact on the lives of people fleeing danger and seeking safety in the United States, and they've also had a significant impact on organizations that work with refugees. No one knows these issues better than David Miliband, President and Chief Executive Officer of the International Rescue Committee. The IRC, established in 1933 at the suggestion of Albert Einstein, now works in more than 40 countries around the world, providing assistance to people displaced by conflict and violence. And in the United States, the IRC resettles thousands of refugees a year. Miliband has been head of the IRC since 2013, and before then, he was a member of the British Parliament, and from 2007 to 2010, was foreign secretary in the British government. In our conversation, we talk about the asylum situation at the U.S. border, as well as broader issues affecting refugees around the world. David Miliband, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Alex. I have learned a lot from you, so happy to repay. Well, that's very kind of you. We expect to learn a lot from you today. Um, so let me start with a quote from The Guardian uh, back in April of this year. Um, the Guardian quoted you as saying, Donald Trump is manufacturing a crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border to justify his hardline immigration plans while failing to tackle the real crisis in Central America. What did you mean by that? The president likes to talk of crisis. He likes to talk of invasion. And my point was that while there had been an increase in the flow of people claiming asylum 
at the southern border or in the United States, uh, it did not represent a crisis. Uh, the true crisis is if you're on the run in El Salvador or Guatemala. The true crisis is if you're being targeted, you and your family are being targeted by organized criminality in Mexico. Uh, the true crisis is if you are desperately fleeing for your life. And for a country of 335 million people, one of the richest countries in the world, it's uh, wrong to say that the search by people for their rights constitutes a crisis, existential or otherwise. Well, let's, so let's get, to the word, get rid of the word crisis. But there was a dramatic increase at the border last year. There were probably one point more than a million people apprehended at the southwest border, and the numbers hadn't been that high for 20 years. Does the president have some kind of a case that there was a dramatic well, change at the border that needed a response? No, there's a, I think there is a crisis in the Northern Triangle. Uh, there, We know that 60% of the people in El Salvador, where we have a, an operation, one of the remarkable things about the International Rescue Committee is that we both work at the source of the displacement and, in a way, at the conclusion on refugee resettlement and asylum processing and integration here in the United States. And so we're able to testify to the fact that six out of 10 people in El Salvador are in one way or another um, embroiled, oppressed uh, by the organized criminality that typifies such a large part of economy and society there. The report that I was speaking to when I did my interview with The Guardian was trying to get to the real facts because as a non-governmental organization, as a non-partisan non-governmental organization, it's really important that we are speaking to what we see and what we know, not just expressing opinions. We're trying to be really careful about speaking to the facts. So what, what do you think a better policy, set of policies would have been to deal with what was, by all accounts, a significant increase in the number of people moving, and we may assume many of them were... Uh, well, I should start with the, something that you mentioned in your question, but which I didn't pick up and, and should have done, which is that you, you, you made the point about um, American policy towards the Northern Triangle, towards El Salvador and other countries. And of course, uh, it makes no sense if you care about the stability of those countries, and therefore if you care about the flow of people out of those countries, to propose cutting the aid budget. Now, equally, we've got to be careful and not pretend that a, a half a billion dollars of aid is somehow the quote-unquote answer to the instability in the Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Um, but we do know that aid programs can be the difference between people being protected and not protected. We do know that aid programs can be the difference between families being targeted and not targeted. And we know that when people or families are unprotected and targeted, they will flee because they're fleeing for their lives. And so there's a pretty direct correlation between some of the aid programs that are under threat and the rise in the number of people that we're seeing at the southern border. The first part of any sensible answer to your question is, well, you have to start at the roots of the problem, and the roots of the problem are not in America. The roots of the problem are in uh, the Northern uh, Triangle countries, and those problems are economic, they're social, and they're political as well. I don't pretend that's easy. But then you have to, the second, don't worry, there are not 19 parts to the answer to this question, but the, the second uh, part of an answer says that when people are on the run, they need protection as they're on the run. And that involves a number of countries between El Salvador and uh, the southern border. Um, and we can talk about that. And the third part of the responsibility, which is the one most within the control 
of the United States is obviously what goes on at the border here and what goes on in the country. It makes no sense that the people who are claiming asylum in the United States today are being given court hearing dates of June 2023. I mean, that's absolutely a crazy way of organizing things when in Germany, if you claim asylum in Germany today, you your case gets processed in eight to 10 weeks. And as the leader of a humanitarian organization, it's very important that I say, I am for efficient and effective processing of asylum claims so that justice is done case by case. So the second thing for the US is to run a proper processing system. Thirdly, it's very important that the US abides by its, not just its legal obligations, which I think are very important. And if someone claims asylum, you know this better than I do, You've written, spoken about this, that um, they should be able to do so. Uh, and that countries that are signatories to the UN Refugee Convention commit to doing so, not sending people back into um, danger, but also that the US um, isn't held to some kind of, you know, heavenly standard, but actually does is held to a standard of global leadership. And global leadership means treating people in a humane way, which uh, presumably on this podcast I don't need to explain, does not include separating kids from their parents and the rest of it. So Sorry it, for the long answer. No, it's fine. It's very interesting. So, so in, in, in terms of the relationships with the Central American countries, one of the uh, things that uh, uh, Trump has done now is to enter into these so-called third country agreements where asylum seekers in the U.S. Uh, can be sent back to Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador if they weren't coming from that country to have their asylum claim adjudicated there. And the justification is not only does it prevent, it'll deter people from coming to the U.S., but also it'll help distribute the burden. And since the world talks about uh, responsibility sharing, this is a way to have the burden of adjudicating asylum cases uh, heard by these other countries. Well, what's been your reaction to those agreements? Look, the U.S. should be better able, it certainly has the resources to be better able to run an efficient and effective asylum processing system than many of the countries south of the um, border. There's um, plenty of um, experience that shows that if you have a dedicated approach to processing asylum claims, you can um, prosecute them or you can um, adjudicate them in a, an effective way. But secondly, uh, the danger that exists for the people who are on the run, or say they're on the run, is much greater if they are south of the US border than if they're in the US. And it's a fundamental principle, I think, of common sense as well as international law that taking people out of danger is better than leaving them in danger. So I'm trying to put together the, the your answers here, which are that we, we need to develop the Central American countries. That's going to take a long time yeah. to, to do. We need to provide protection and care as people go through uh, Mexico. And then we also need to be uh, really let people in to file their claims. Now, the government, the U.S. government might well answer. And I might say I took similar positions when I was at UNHCR working yeah. there. We made these kinds of arguments and we were faced, UNHCR was faced as well. It's always easier for humanitarian organizations to talk about how uh, countries should take people in. But are you really saying, they would say to me, and I now will say to you, are you really saying that anybody who showed up at the Southwest border, a million people this year, should have been let into the United States? They all could have filed asylum claims disappeared for three or four years before their a case was adjudicated. Is that a sustainable policy for the United States? Well, no, States? but it's, a, the, 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 it's not sustainable if you insist on waiting four years to adjudicate a case. That's the point. If you are willing to invest the resources, uh, which are actually legally required, to process cases in eight to ten weeks, then you have an immediate impact on the flow but you also send a pretty clear message about the way the integrity of the system. And there are different 
at different points in history, different percentages of people qualify and pass the um, test. And I don't favor open borders. I'm not in favor of open borders. Uh, the you have to, to be a given refugee status, you have to uh, show that you have a well-founded fear of persecution on grounds that you know uh, well. And that seems to me to be right. And if you can't show that, then you can't stay. And if the distinction between a refugee and, and an immigrant is lost, it's not good for refugees and it's not good for immigrants. Um, because... Refugee policy is an international legal obligation. Um, immigration, I happen to think, is a good thing, but that's a national choice. And nations can be um, expansive in their definition of immigration rights and committed in respect of refugee rights, or they can be committed in respect of re refugee rights but decide they're not going to let many people in as immigrants. Now, I might say that I would make a different policy choice about immigration, but there isn't the same legal requirement in, in respect of immigration policy as there is in respect of refugee policy. And this may be a controversial thing to say, but I think that's right. I think there's a different moral claim for someone who is on the run fearing for their life than for someone who wants to move for a better life. It's not that one is good and the other is bad. It's that they're different. And it's tempting for... Uh, people to say, well, I'm in favor of everyone. Well, yes, of course, we all want to be um, ensure that everyone has their rights protected. But the rights that are given to people who are on the run for fear of their life are legally different. And I would argue there's good reason for that. Again, to, just so I'm don't, not misunderstood, not because one is good and the other is bad, but because they're different. The baker who's bombed out of their house in Damascus, and by the way, I've met that person because we've resettled him in Silver Spring, is in a different position than someone who wants to have an opportunity that is not available to them in the country that they're coming from. The problem with too much that often is classified as quote-unquote pro-refugee is it doesn't actually answer the hard questions. And if I can teach anyone anything, it's that there's absolutely no point in answering the easy so, questions. Let, let, so let me push back on this then. So someone might come back to you and say, you're right, no one should be returned to danger and they should be re rescued. But what the Trump administration has put in place is people will be returned to countries they didn't come from for their to have their cases adjudicated. And moreover, they should stay in Mexico where they can file for asylum in Mexico. No, there's the Trump administration can claim here that no one, in fact, is being returned to their home country where they're likely to be persecuted through the policies they put in place, which denies asylum to anybody who's traveled through Mexico. They say, apply in Mexico. Why come to the U.S.? So there, are two, the there, are, there, there are two answers to that. One, yeah. where an individual lodges their claim, there's a legal responsibility to process that claim. And secondly, uh, the fact that someone doesn't come from Mexico doesn't mean it's safe for them in Mexico. So sending them back to danger... It applies whether you send them to El Salvador or whether you send them to Mexico. And the tragedy is that people who are sent back are then exploited. Because the return to Mexico policy uh, take, it has this docketing system for uh, when people's number uh, comes up, they're then stuck in complete limbo, not least because Mexico is less able to d deliver the asylum processing that the U.S. should be able to deliver. So what um, one of the proposals that's made, in, and it deals with the, the issue you addressed about uh, immigration and refugees, uh, is that 
the U.S. actually should be adopting a broader immigration policy towards the Central American countries and bringing more people in who want to work, assuming that this flow is not a flow only of refugees, but some people fleeing climate change, looking for better jobs and the like. Does that make sense to you as part of an overall policy for the region? To well, expand, if you're fleeing climate change, leave, let's come back to climate change. Leave, yeah, fleeing leave climate, climate change, change is, but, is, is a... About, think about people coming for largely economic reasons or to join family here. Would it make sense to expand the immigration channels to come directly from those countries Well, I think the, the first priority, if I may say so, I'm not, I'm obviously, you may have guessed from my accent, I'm not an American and I'm not a voter here, but the first priority is to sort out the people who are already here. So you've got this case of the 800,000 um, deferred action. The DACA students. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I try and avoid the acronyms because yeah. it presumes that everyone knows what we're saying. But the people who came here as kids, uh, it wasn't their choice, but they were brought here as kids. They're now in the military. They're now as students. The first priority is for you to have an immigration policy that does something about people who are living, I don't like to say in the shadows, because that suggests there's something kind of um, wrong about the way they're behaving, but people who are living without appropriate uh, documentation. And so uh, that's an important part of your incomplete immigration system because you haven't had an immigration law since 1986. And so I think the first priority is that. Then there's all sorts of social, economic um, decisions that you've got to make as a country about what you want your immigration policy to be, which will be based on the needs of the country, but also based on the neighborhood in which you um, live. The irony is, of course, more people have been leaving the U.S. to go to Mexico over the last five or six years than have been leaving Mexico to come to the um, U.S. So there's been net emigration from the U.S. Uh, to Mexico over the last uh, five or six years. And I would say the priorities are, one, to sort out the 10, 11 million undocumented who exist in the country. Secondly, to rebuild your refugee resettlement system, which was a bipartisan part of the American political landscape. Ronald Reagan admitted more refugees on for resettlement, which is where they get transferred, they, they apply for ref, refugee status out of country uh, and uh, come here on an organized uh, way. Uh, thirdly, to get your asylum processing system working in an effective way, because you're storing up a load of problems with people who will put down roots and then only to have their cases dealt with in three, four, five years' time, which makes the um, policy issues far more difficult whether they agree to stay or to, whether they're given status of staying or, or going. What do you think is behind the Trump policies? What's going on there? What's the, what are the motivations? What's, what's Well, I'm very careful. I'm running an NGO which has Republicans and Democrats and non-aligned people on our, amongst our staff, on our board, etc. And I'm very careful not to deal in personalities, but to deal in policies. So I don't want to venture into a sort of psycho psychological explanation of what's going on. Clearly, um, there's politics, though, involved in this. And people often say to me, what's it like to lead a humanitarian agency that helps refugees at a time of backlash? And what I always say to them is, look, it's, it's wrong to talk ourselves into a situation where we think there's only one-way traffic in this uh, debate. It's a time of polarization, not just backlash. I think clearly uh, that in respect of refugees, they've been caught up in a wider discontent about American immigration policy. And in my experience, when issues of immigration and issues of refugees are confused, it's bad for both immigrants and for uh, refugees. Um, so I don't want to um, ascribe motive uh, to that. But clearly, the um, 
failure to legislate on immigration has allowed for real um, sort of the, the 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 sticks of the uh, that can be rubbed together to produce a fire to be to be left there, and um, that's you could see that uh, brewing um, in a way. The fact that it's less "quote unquote" justified um, than the facts allow is slightly beside the point because obviously there's a there's a, there's a wider and unfinished debate in America about politics of immigration and probably it will never be finished because it waxes and wanes doesn't it look in the, the same number of people who don't want muslims to come today didn't want jews to come in the late 1930s and you know there's a washington post poll that shows 65% of americans didn't want to allow jews into america in 1940 so we've been you've been here uh, before and my own um uh, contributions not quite the right word my own observation would be one unfinished immigration policy two the sense that arises from that, that the government isn't in quote-unquote control, is relevant to that. Thirdly, this confusion of different types of unresolved issue, which leads to your backlog in your immigration courts, that has asylum cases, it has uh, people smuggling cases, it has a whole range of different people stuck in the same system. So you put to the side appropriately the issue of uh, climate uh, change, which uh, the numbers are yeah, not but, to the not the back of the queue, just to emphasize. Right, I mean, right, right. No, I'm saying, uh, but um, but by by all accounts, the numbers will get uh, quite large. Uh, there have been well, I would say. That, let me just uh, at the risk of being even more controversial. People often talk about climate refugees. That and, was going to be my question. Okay, yeah, so yeah. Um, I try to be quite careful about this uh, because the truth is that for the foreseeable future, if you even think about the next twenty or even thirty years, we're going to be talking not about climate refugees but climate IDPs, climate internally displaced. So if you think about Bangladesh, which is one of the most exposed um, countries for, to climate change, the likelihood is that people will move from the southern delta up into northern Bangladesh, not move into um, Pakistan or, or India. Um, and second reason for being slightly careful about it is that while I can conceive of circumstances where it wasn't safe, quote unquote, to go home, it doesn't quite fit the original definition of refugee status. And I am leery of the dilution of the refugee status, because I think that will rebound against the fair treatment of those who are refugees. But, now, let's, but let's, I'm going to interrupt for one second. Let, let's take your, the example of your baker in in Syria who was resettled as a refugee yeah. uh, because his house was bombed. By his own government. By his own government. But, but most of the people who have been considered refugees from Syria would not meet the 1951 definition of refugee. They're not being personally targeted on a, on a particular ground and persecuted. They're caught as victims now in, in, in a brutal civil war and they need protection and, and safety. If, if our practice well, that's, has that's gone to- that's pretty close to the definition. I mean, the definition- No, no, but that's what I'm wondering how then we would, why wouldn't then climate, people fleeing climate for similar reasons, people caught in desperate situations also then be appropriate well, for international I mean, I think the, 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 So, I mean, you, you said you'd interrupt me for a second and you successfully did, but you didn't make me lose my train of thought, which was to um, say that um, climate is going to be a massive uh, mul multiplier of conflict, which is going to drive more refugees indirectly. Um, secondly, it's going to be a, a, a stressor when it comes to driving the movement of people both inside countries, which could itself then have um, knock-on um, effects. And thirdly, in the cases that you um, describe, 
Um, if you think about the Sahel in 30 years' time or Lake Chad Basin in 30 years' time, you can imagine someone saying, look, I can't make a living, I can't make ends meet where I used to uh, live. And it fits the, the, the climate refugee question. I don't want to um, suggest, I don't want to be misunderstood on this. It's precisely in the gray area that exists between um, those forced to leave and those choosing to leave, which is the easiest way of distinguishing a refugee from a um, from a migrant. Now, um, I am both, uh, as a matter of practice, I don't ever see the 193 countries of the UN agreeing to a new regime. And secondly, if they did, I think they'd dilute the standards, which aren't frozen in aspic by the 51 regime. Remember the, well, I don't need to tell you to remember, but you know that the administrative courts that deal with these questions keep the law up to date. So sexual violence would not have been considered a reason for refugee status uh, 70 years ago, but is considered a reason in most countries today. Um, you're not safe to go back. And although you say about the um, the, the refugees, oh, it, you know, you can't claim it wouldn't, it, they're, they're almost like collateral victims of the civil war in Syria. If you ask refugees in Jordan and Lebanon why they don't want to go back, a lot of them say, I don't want my son to be conscripted into Assad's army. And if he's... Um, if he's a conscripted, and if he refuses to be conscripted, he's going to be targeted. So you can see that it's not that far from the original yeah. intent. Um, the, the United States has dramatically reduced the number of refugees it's accepting from over the world under the Trump administration. And you, more than anyone, has actually felt this in terms of the operations of the IRC, because as a major resettling organization in the U.S., the numbers of people you're resettling have dropped. Can you talk a bit about what that's meant for the organization and what you do you do you see that other countries around the world are picking up the numbers that the US uh, uh, are not resettling or is this now a trend around the world a reduction in resettlement so let me start with your second point which is I think important I mean the first one's interesting but the second one I think is more important where the US goes others follow so when the US reduces the number of refugees being admitted under the resettlement route others reduce their numbers as well now, the numbers were always pretty small. Um, when the US admitted 90,000 refugees under the re refugee resettlement route in the last year of the Obama administration, by the, to repeat, not halcyon days, remember Ronald Reagan admitted 200,000. So the maximum that Barack Obama got to was uh, 90,000. So uh, let's, let's keep that in perspective. Uh, but nonetheless, at that time, when the Obama administration went from 60,000 to 90,000, other countries stepped up too. There was something called the um, UN Special Summit on Refugees in 2016. September 2016. And I think the total numbers of refugees on the resettlement route, the organized transfer from Jordan or Lebanon or Congo to uh, the US uh, and other countries, 35, 33 countries admitted people. I think there was 150,000 or something. So in the context of 25 million refugees, it's a limited number, but nonetheless, 150,000 lives um, effectively transformed. Um, now that the US is, and, and the US had 90,000 out of 150,000. Now, as the US reduces the number. It's easier for others to reduce the number. And that's certainly what we've seen. We're actually arguing at the moment that the European Union needs to step up and, and declare that it will fill some of the void by taking 50,000 a year, 250,000 over the next five years. And so I think it's important for listeners to, to see that moral leadership isn't just a bit of um, a flight of fancy of an NGO. It actually has practical consequences. Now, the first part of the question is, what does it mean for us? We're the largest refugee resettlement agency in the US. We're also, I always hasten to add, we're also rated by the State Department as the number one for quality in terms of how we get people into work, how we give opportunity and uh, support to those 
who arrive. Now, um, we've had to close three offices in the last um, two, three years, um, but we've protected our network, 25 offices around the U.S. There's only 18,000 refugees to be admitted this year, plus 10,000 special immigrant visa from uh, Afghanistan, people who served with the U.S. military or with U.S. Uh, diplomats and uh, are admitted under that status. We resettle them as well. And we've tried to sustain our network of offices because whether Republican or Democrat, we actually get good support locally. And in the places that we work, we work in Wichita, Kansas, but we also work in San Diego and in uh, New York, uh, across the country. And the, the, the local reaction is, is positive as we are part of communities that are mobilizing for civic renewal. That's how we see the um, the people that we bring in, not just for resettlement, which sounds almost slightly um, clinical. Uh, we're about integration, which connotes the notion of success. We want people to have get their kids into school and succeed. We want them to get into work and contribute. Uh, we actually know that the refugees who we resettle pay more in taxes than they receive in welfare benefits during the time that they're there. We even did a study to show that they're more likely to repay their car loans than those who um, are um, like indigenous to the, the country. And we've tried to maintain our network because we want to argue both the Trump administration and to any other administration that this is a successful bipartisan program. But we've only managed being able to sustain that network a, by accessing local and state funds, not just uh, federal funds. Uh, secondly, by um, making sure that we are alive to the needs of the asylum crisis, not just the uh, not just the um, or asylum issue, um, not just the refugee resettlement issue. And thirdly, we've done we do a bit of work in some of our offices on people trafficking, and always we're careful to stick to our mission. We're not a general anti-poverty agency. We're not a general immigration agency. Our mission statement, which we rewrote five years ago, is about helping all those whose lives are shattered by conflict or disaster survive, recover, and gain control of their lives. So you can see that asylum seekers, people trafficked, uh, people who are the victims of people trafficking, as well as refugees who are resettled, fit within that mission statement. So we're quite careful to avoid a kind of mission creep, because I don't think that would be, I don't think that'd be wise. Hmm. Uh David, let me let me end with this. Um, you, you are a, a child of refugees, so you've experienced. Yeah, I don't think of it's interesting. I'm I'm much more aware of that now than I. I mean, my parents brought me up. They never they didn't sort of say to me, "Oh, you know, just remember how lucky you are." It was kind of it was quite. Uh, it's, it's it's interesting to hear that description of myself, which um, I, I totally understand and, I'm, and I, I recognize is correct. But it's interesting how. Um, one of the jobs that my parents had, or that they thought they had, was to make sure I wasn't labelled in that way. So should I withdraw the question? No, no. It's, it's kind of, I mean, it's, 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 maybe they were wrong. You see, maybe yeah. they. You see, I had someone say to me, the reason for picking up on it or or, or pausing on it is interesting. Um, I think I, I gave a talk in California, and uh, one of the Silicon Valley companies, and this woman came up to me in tears, floods of tears afterwards, and. I said, well, what's wrong? And she said, um, uh, my parents were refugees from Vietnam. They were let in in the late uh, 70s. And they never talked about the fact that they were refugees. Um, it, they didn't hide it from me. You know, but they, they, they were so, that they almost felt that talking about being a refugee was, went against assimilating or integrating. And she said, this woman said to me, I think we're in the mess we're in today because people like my parents didn't talk about what they'd been through, which is kind of interesting. 
Thanks so much for being Thank you here. very much. Really, really nice. Thanks All right. So Thanks, Alex. You've been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Our engineer is Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112, and theme music composed by Eli Nalenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes, and you can reach us by emailing us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That's tossedtempest.com all one word at gmail.com.